20th century Irish playwright Sean O'Casey once wrote, That's Irish people all over. They treat a serious thing as a joke, and a joke is a serious thing. For today's show, we watched Martin McDonough's 2008 film, In Bruges. Welcome to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. So, In Bruges, directed and written by Martin McDonough, it was starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson being the two main characters in this one. Uh, it was nominated for Best Writing of an Original Screenplay at the Oscars, although it did not win it. But it did win Best Performance for Colin Farrell at the Golden Globes, and it was nominated for Best Performance for Brendan Gleeson and shot on a budget of $15 million, uh, I believe almost entirely in the city of Bruges itself. So let's hear your context, Mike. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, so uh, this movie I saw just after it came out or just after it got to North America. And it was one of the, like, I was, it was one of the first movies, or it was one of those movies that I was the first to see amongst my friend group that I then got to share with my friend group who all enjoyed the movie. And, you know, you get that little bit of prestige that comes even though you didn't do anything to achieve it. You, oh, you're the one who shared the movie. Yeah, oh, wow. you just introduced it. You have taste. Um, yeah. So, and I, um, and I guess the other thing was it was one of those um, movies that when I saw it and I liked it, um, but without having too many thoughts as to why I liked it, it's just there was, there was like some innate qualities to it. The rhythm. um, the the humor the like a lot just a lot of the stuff in it just kind of in, like innately spoke to whatever is in me that i and made <laughs> yeah. me uh, uh appreciate it and like it and and kind of feel comfortable in the scope of it and so that it that's kind of why or how i came to the movie it was just one of uh, on a whim i saw it because i like both the actors brennan gleason and colin farrell and then it was like a buddy hitman movie is how it was like pitched in the in the ad campaign and all the stuff leading up to it so i was like oh that sounds interesting i kind of wish it, did, it wasn't sold like that but it was um and uh but you for for yourself this is the first movie we've done on the podcast together that one of us hadn't seen coming in everything else we had both seen at least year like a few years ago if not more recent this you've never seen before so i guess you don't have much context to this no yeah i uh i first heard about it honestly not even that long ago like the name was mentioned to me by a uh another co-worker uh maybe a year ago now somebody threw the name out when i I, it was a conversation where I was talking to somebody about how I have a list on my phone of all these movies that I haven't seen yet, uh, which is horrifyingly long considering wh what I do and where I am. Uh, uh, so, and every time somebody mentions the name of a movie or something to me, I add it to this list in my phone that often becomes longer much more frequently than it becomes shorter. But yeah, so about a year ago, this coworker of mine uh, had mentioned that it was it was a movie that he thought I would really appreciate. And so I added it to the list, and then I kept thinking, yeah, I'll find this one day, and I could never figure out where to find it or or where I could watch it without, uh, like, on the, any of the streaming platforms I had or anything. And then, you know, you mentioned it um, a few weeks ago when we first started making out lists of the next couple of episodes we'd be putting out, and it was this great little convenience of, I've been meaning to watch this forever, so here we go, we're doing it. And, um, 
And it's also, I guess that makes it, for these movies, I often uh, will watch them two or three times before an episode. And usually the first watch, if I haven't seen it in a long time, I'll, or at all, I would watch it as a blank slate and just try and enjoy the movie for what it is and think about it from a moviegoer's perspective. And then the second time I watch it, I try to turn off the brain part of me that's just taking in the story and try to focus on uh, building arguments and thinking about it more critically. Uh, And I had a hard time doing that with this one. For whatever reason, I watched it twice, and both times I found myself getting caught up in, in watching the story and forgetting to forgetting to think about what the movie was saying and talking so uh i guess that goes a little bit to uh the quality of the film and how how good the story is because it really is just a a strong character piece more than anything else in a lot of ways um yeah so i think we should start this off with something that we maybe don't have as much to say about on this one which is the cine aspect of things well uh just just to kind of go off what you've said there um i think part of why you were drawn in and 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 um is the cine i think it's like there's a lot of tableaus and there's like it's a lot of like still camera observing it's a lot of conventional placement for your camera and for the and for the coverage of a scene the camera's not making you pay attention to it or think about it it's there to show you what needs to be seen and give you the best view to get absorbed in what's going on with these, with these characters and and to enjoy the city as much as some of them might or might not be enjoying it at that current time and I, but i think that all goes i like i think they use the cine uh, cinematography and the a um like even down to the insert shots of the city where between for like transitions to different scenes they have these we don't like almost like postcards, like uh, odd angles of buildings at night and or whatever, or in the day, different, just different, just kind of postcard kind of frames of of, of Brussels or uh, uh, Bruges. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and um, and it's I think it's that type of thing. I think that later informs you as the like because the whole the whole movie is putting you in the place of the co-leads of this picture more or less um it's putting you in the oh how beautiful this city is let's go see the sights and like oh how dull and boring this medieval preservation is depending on whose brain you're aligning with yeah (laughs) and um and i but i think the cinematography really helps helps sell that conflict um helps sell that uh that struggle within the viewer the audience the viewer because you do say, "Oh my, how beautiful!" At well, certainly I did in the first act when they're introducing this. Even though you have the a relatable character saying, "Oh, it's all rubbish," you're seeing uh, these beautiful shots, and you can't help but admire this town. But late as it as the film progresses, and as the story progresses, and as you start to become more on the edge of your seat, like what's going to happen next? What twist are we going to take? What are these characters going to do with all the information I now know about them? When they later cut to the transitions, you're just like, get to the next, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then you almost be, you were almost put in the place of the struggle of those. Even, even for me, who I, I, I love traveling and sightseeing and, and I love Gothic architecture and that old medieval style. And, and like, I can imagine just being, I can imagine being, you know, in the situation of Ken, who's just like going to all these places and seeing all this stuff. 
I'm not a I'm not a religious person, but I do find that the history of humankind is very interesting, and it's often very intertwined with churches and things like that, and the architecture of the time and all those sorts of things. So, like, I myself very easily understand his point of, like, going through and looking at all this stuff. But the movie still managed to get me into that vein you were talking about of, like, okay, we're, we're you know, feeling the headspace of, of uh, Ray's character as well in a few instances. Yeah, and I think it also plays to, like, another theme, which we can get into later, but uh, it kind of touches on a discussion of, like, what is adulthood? And in, in that... I think the movie movie posits a bit that adulthood is just kind of accepting these new realities and new constructs and these new I like confines to to the way you live and that you can't act on instincts as you did as a child and you can't you know you can't uh view the world the same you you have to put it through these prisms you've been taught to look at it through and this then therefore kind of makes you I guess, try to appreciate the beauty because you're an adult watching this. And one of the ways that I thought that the movie really did a good job of that is it's it in how wide and far away or close its framing gets. A lot of movies are really afraid to do extreme close-ups and close-ups on characters um, or else overdo them because they... They know the power of the shot, but as soon as you use them too much, you lose that power. And same with those extreme wides. You know, it's classic in Westerns to get that big sort of vista. You're way back. You're on 70 millimeter film or whatever. You're just seeing the whole thing. Um, and you get that in this with, with the landscapes and, and seeing a lot of the city in one sweep. But you also get right into the characters' faces in really important moments that really kind of put you in their shoes in a lot of ways. One of those ways, and it's a little bit off from the... I guess, building conversation. But when they're up in the tower at the end there, we're just going to get right into the spoilers here. And and he shoots Ken, yeah. uh, he being Henry, Harry, uh, shoots Ken. A- after he leans him down and he gets right up in his face and, and you get this sort of Dutch angle. You can't even really see his mouth. It's just his eyes and his nose. And they're almost kind of out of focus as he's talking to him about you can't get away with with killing a kid or you can't kill a kid and expect to get away with it um and it's just like right there in his face and it's like through the eyes of ken who's now been shot and his vision's a little blurry and he's a little bit like you know it puts you in the space of those those perspectives really well yeah absolutely i i think and not just that but using the close-ups and and or medium shots to sit with a character in quiet reflection, as we do to for both Ken and Ray numerous times, even Harry maybe once, um, maybe not. But like, it seems there's these moments where we just sit with a character for what almost feels like too long. Well, after after Ken goes to get the gun, and we come back to Ray lying in bed, noticing he's gone, and he just sort of rolls over and he just lies there, and it's just him in a medium shot, somewhere between a medium and a medium close up. Just him uh, starting to slowly cry as he's lying in bed trying to hold his shit together. And uh, it's like like we're there for a long time to watch it. And you don't really know for sure what's going on in his head. Like, is he going to kill himself? To, has he realized what's going on and he's sad because he knows he's going to die? Like, where's his brain at? But it lets you sit and think about what he's pondering with yeah. him. Absolutely, and the same with you know when they when they check it, when they first go to the cathedral that has the vial of Jesus's blood in it, and he's acting like a ch- uh, Ray is acting <laughs> like a child, and Ken says, "Well, go sit outside, and I'm gonna get in line to touch it or whatever." 
And I mean, it, all all he does all he does is say you don't have to touch it, and then he leaves, and you can tell he's he's disappointed that that Ray's left, and he was really hoping that he would stick around. But yeah, well, but it's also I I understand that again. I understand you know, like how cool is this? Where we have this opportunity to interact with this piece of history, whether it's the Jesus's blood or not. Uh, it is historic in that people have given it reverence for hundreds of years. And um, but I also understand that if none of if you, if the pretense of any of that doesn't matter to you, then all you're doing is sitting in an old, slightly dusty, moldy room, <laughs> waiting to touch a vial of something that almost certainly isn't the blood of the actual son of God. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I could you know and like yeah you. I mean, he he goes, he very much uh, embodies a child in that moment, right down to his posture, right down to the dragging of his feet. Yeah, as he yeah, goes. yeah. The banging of the chair in uh, yeah, a very childish like, sort of way. Uh, well, just, yeah, just anything he's trying to take, you know, it's, he's drawing attention to himself, but in that very childish way. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, I have been in both boats where I find myself often in those situations where we're, we're somewhere and I'm super fascinated in this thing or it's, a, it's you know, whatever, and someone that you're with is not. And it's just like it kind of ruins the whole, the whole moment if you're trying really hard to be interested in this thing and someone else is kind of just being, you know, childish about, about the situation and not caring. And so in, that, in those boats, you know, it's like, well, just go somewhere else then and let me enjoy this by myself. But then I've also been that other person too where I'm just like, oh, okay, well, we can... You know, and everybody's been there. So, it was, and but, I and I think that's it. And I and I guess the what I was getting to is when he's outside, he's on a bench again, and you're we're with him in a like a medium close up, kind of in a moment of reflection. You see him. You see it's kind of one of the first times that his facade is falling. It's not the first time, but it's one of the first times that we're with him alone. Uh, you know, he's with other people, but alone as far as characters in the movie, and he gets sad until his eyes get distracted by Jimmy walking across and he tries to wave at him and then doesn't get the wave and then he takes it as an insult. Yeah, Even though yeah. uh, it's a perspective thing, he thinks he's seen him and, and he may not have even seen him. And as, as we find out later, he's really high on <laughs> horse tranquilizer and didn't, definitely didn't see him. Um, but it's it is that it's that whole what we're talking about is that like the the convention of adulthood and, and the 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 fact that we all have to buy into these these conventions and we buy into these ideas and and it's that part of your brain you know it's interesting so you say it's interesting and then it's interesting but you could equally just not buy in and then all of that all of the 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 uh, the house of cards falls on the idea of that being interesting yeah yeah and i and i think there's <laughs> I think there's something very inter interesting in that idea because it is something I, I often find myself struggling with in life uh, is like, is, is this something that is this old church interesting or is this interest like, or is this just something that I've been told is interesting and therefore I'm giving it some sort of meaning when it really has none or do you know what I mean? Like I, I do, I do find those two, these two characters are a bit of a meditation on that, of that kind of dichotomy and that struggle that I find is that was this weird part of the maturation into adulthood and the we and like 
the part that I didn't think as a kid, like, oh, well, I didn't have this perspective, but as a child, what I thought would be becoming an adult wasn't that. I just thought it would, like, one day you woke up and you were, like, an adult kind of thing. You know what I mean? I didn't think it <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but it's, but it's this slow, like, accepting of these weird unwritten rules that society has that we're all just buying into and are a part of, kind of. That's very interesting i did not in my own watching of this read the growing to adulthood or even even your commentary like like i picked up a little bit on like ray's childish nature but it never clicked as i was going through it of of like connecting him as being a kid and you know brendan gleason's character uh, uh, ken always calls him the, the boy or a boy and and even still, I just like I always saw him as like I I, I never I never followed that path. But. Well, and Ken's character treats him with an innocence, even though he's a hitman who's done something terrible, and that's why we're in this situation. But it's his first job, and so I guess right. he's new blood, and he's not experienced, so he's young in that regard. And then also Ray's character has um, Ray's character. Uh, has the um, that quality that some children possess, which is that truth-telling thing that that you know some right, some, right. Some adults Un- think, non-filtered. Some adults are like, yeah, I just tell the truth, and other adults are like, yeah, he's an he's just an he's a-hole. Just a- <laughs> like, like, yeah, you like you know have some social graces and don't say something like you don't if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything you don't need to call it as it is all the time yeah where um but like i i feel like he's and and but also in that way i also had a reading of this where uh, uh, as far as um i think even freud gets mentioned at one point in this movie but like there's the whole like i didn't take psychology but just from like watching television and you know, uh, like that kind of thing. My my pop psychology knowledge of of Fro- some of Freud's theories. This is kind of like Colin Farrell's Ray is is the id. Um, Harry is the super ego, kind of the constraints and the confines of the, and 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 your your parental um, your parental uh, guidance that makes up your your morality. As far as I understand, that's kind of what the super ego is. And then your ego is the one that's trying to b- balance the id with the reality. And so that's Ken's kind of role in this whole thing. So I had this read where, where that's kind of, they're each the personifications of those kind of idea, Freud's ideas of the three parts of, of our psyche. Another read that I didn't pick up on, but another one that I was, I'm really fascinated with. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could, I could definitely see that being a, 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 a way to read that. I, my, my focus on if we're going to talk about the themes of things for a second here yeah 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 um i guess my my focus on the read was was entirely on the the idea of morality as i was watching through it and what morality means to different people but also like how people exist within their own code of ethics and that you have these three characters who are i mean in essence awful people who's you know kill people for money and who uh don't treat the people around them particularly well but they're all they all still have this sort of code that they try to live by that they try to justify their actions i guess and and that they're they're doing 
something and maybe that some of the things they do are bad but at least they do some good in their lives like the the line in the sand with kids that that harry has or um the the uh ken's insistence on you know the boy get, has to walk away he needs to have a, a shot at like a good life he d- can't become me so a, a lot of a lot of my read of the the themes of it was based around that sort of morality question but it, I guess that kind of goes to what I was, I guess, trying to get at with that roundabout adult thing is that um, adulthood thing is, is that um, is that like our, our experiences and our, our construct as, a, as humans to the point we are at in the present um, per, as given us all, like is the way we view the, the world around us is how we is the prism through which we view the world around us. And I guess um what i was thinking is with what you're describing with morality that all comes from that and so everyone like there is no necessarily moral good and bad everything is is constructed around how you see the world uh, so far as to the um when Ra- uh, ray and chloe have the altercation with the chloe's ex-boyfriend with the blank gun <laughs> yeah yeah um when Ray is questioning the fact that a beautiful girl would like him because he he's you know he he doesn't he think, looks down on himself, and he and uh, he says like of course someone like you wouldn't like a guy like me, and she goes so, what do you mean someone like me? And he's like someone nice, and she has this weird like looks at him and smiles weirdly, and that's because <laughs> what he knows about her the true things he knows about her is that she deals drugs on movie sets <laughs> in 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 uh bruges and that she's running a a honeypot scheme with her ex-boyfriend to rob tourists but, <laughs> and yet that's his definition and of then nice. but then she's a nice she's a nice girl to him yeah yeah and uh, i just think um like i think this movie has a bit a lot about perception and a lot about how perception it like your individual perception is what shapes your moral compass and moral framework and that it's all just something we're kind of tacitly agreeing to when we enter when we're part of this society that we all just kind of build this frame these frameworks and and we all try to have them kind of line up but none of them really line up like there's more overlap between harry ray and ken than there is separation but they're they're vastly different people in a way as well yeah yeah i one of the things i noted having watched through it the second time was uh, that there is a lot to do in this with perspective and subjectivity and the fact that you can't really, like, your, your, the way in which you view the world versus the way in which someone else views it are different, but also with the way you interact with it. Like, to go back to your point about when uh, the, the racist dwarf, uh, Jim, that was his name. Jimmy. Yeah. Jimmy or Jim. Um, when he's walking through the square and, and, and Ray waves at him and whatever, he, he takes offense that the, the guy didn't respond to him, but without really realizing, of course, that he's got his own problems and whatever else is going on. You know, there's all of these little instances throughout the movie where somebody takes something that somebody has done on a surface level and judges it and reacts to it in a way without understanding the other side of the story, the other perspective. And, trying to uh, grasp that which is which is how people operate i mean you you can only react and respond in in whatever ways you know with the context that you know but all of these character reactions seem to 
relate somehow to to that sort of dichotomy of perspective and and it is that and it's laid out right away the first thing they do when they enter the town after they check into the hotel is they go to the tower and ken says to him are you coming up and he says go up there what for to see the view the view of what the view of down here i can see that from down here (laughs) and and it's it's that kind of just, uh, it, it's all like everything is kind of about perspective in the same way, you know, um, in the, in the inciting incident, the murder of this priest on behalf, Harry got, hires the, um, Ray to murder a priest. He murders said priest. But as the pre, as the priest is walking out from Ray's perspective, he's just shoot, finishing the job, shooting the priest. What he doesn't realize is the priest has obscured an innocent child behind him who dies in that moment. And it, again, that's about a perspective thing. It's just, of course, Ray wouldn't have shot those things, ha- shot those last few bullets if he knew the child was behind him and that kind of thing. But he also says that he would always have killed that boy at one point. That, you know, going back to that conversation we had uh, in a previous episode about determinism and the fact that, you know, everything about his life has brought him to where he is and, and no matter what world he was in he always would have ended up killing that kid one way or another right but see i always read that as just that that's him and like that's his depression and that's his like him dealing with the grief of what he's done i don't like i i don't like the the rest of the movie what i know of his character through the the evidence of the rest of the film i don't think his character would have ever shot that boy um like no i'm not saying he would have ever shot it intentionally unless he came at him with a bottle (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i don't mean to say that and and it was one of those interesting moments where i saw that line and my brain went to what we were talking about before and and this idea of like you know there was nothing he could have done but also he feels like there's something he could have done and while while obviously this determinism and this like sort of idea is not a theme in this movie and it's not particularly predominant it almost seems like there's this point where there where Ray is accepted that maybe because that's kind of like for him, it's kind of like that turning point where he is has resolved to kill himself because no matter what he feels that that's how that situation would have played out. And there was nothing he could have done and there's nothing he can do but prevent bad things from being done by him again. Yeah, uh, you're right. And then, um, but as more evidence for the perspective as a perspective as a theme in this, um, it also appears in dialogue. A lot of dialogue returns and is repeated. And the second time the line is said, based on the new information we have as the audience, the line the line reads differently. Even in the the conversation Ken has when Ray's out on the date night, Ken has the conversation with Harry, and Ken is. Um, so determined to like keep up the the these falsehood structures of of this little <laughs> world that he he goes so far as to actually do the foley sound effects on the phone for her, uh, even though it seems as though Harry can't hear them because he still asks the questions afterwards. Yeah, and he still, but he still he it's all performative. Um, it's all it's it's just a construct for Harry and. Um, and but in that conversation, he has that line. Uh, it's something where he's like, uh, 
uh, I know I'm awake, but it feels like it's a dream is what Ken claims Ray's first line to him was when he gets into the old town. And Harry's like, oh, I love that. And and then but then by the end of the conversation, it's determined that Harry's asking Ken to kill him. And then he says, what was that line again? What did he say? And now a disheartened, distraught Ken repeats, I know I'm awake, but it feels like I'm dreaming. And it's but ne- so the first time he said it, it's like fanciful and Ken's just making this thing up. And now it this this it is Ken's reality, and he wishes he he was awake. And it's it's how he felt about coming to the city and being uh, reveling in the beauty of the city, and then vice versa, being stuck in this dream, this nightmare of having to kill someone, which we don't know their relationship for how other than they must have known each other somehow because they say that like Ken brought brought Ray in and he was. The reason he got into it. So they must have some relationship. They seem to be friends. They seem to have like a rapport with each other, but we don't know. Yeah. And they're both Irishmen in London working for this other guy. Like you can see there could be a kinship between these two characters, a mentor mentee relationship, that kind of thing. Uh, One thing actually thinking about what you were just saying about that dialogue and the, the recurring nature of the dialogue the the movie also does a really good job of foreshadowing things to come that tower op- that opening tower scene where he goes up by him or, um, ken goes up by himself and he's looking down on on ray in the in the square and sort of like makes the like finger gun shooting gesture at him which seems like something just you know an, an average regular person would pro- like i probably would make that kind of joke to myself up the top of a tower like that too but so you don't really think much of it until you come back to the end and then he's in the tower and he's trying to shoot down and suddenly he can't anymore despite the you know the previous ability to um and it's, or the, uh, the the freak out uh, ray has right at the beginning in the bathroom where they don't talk about anything he just sort of like ken implies that something happened and without having to say any words ray is suddenly like oh you got to go bring that up do you and then he goes off to the bathroom just like these these nice little moments of Snap, uh, snapshots of, of little scenes that don't really make a whole lot of sense in the context of the moment but you come back to later as like cyclical bookended sort of where we start here we go away and we come back to here throughout the whole film there's a ton of instances of those that i thought was really effectively used i yeah i am um, i agree and and because i know the film now every time i see it i can't divorce myself from the end of the film when i'm watching it at the start but I guess from your uh, watching from with your point of view, fr- uh, watching this fresh, or I guess I kind of trying to remember what I thought when I first watched it fresh, is that like the mystery of what have they done to end up in Bruges in in uh, purgatory as as it were? Yeah, yeah. Um, what? Why are we here? And and the you find out f- fairly quickly. Like the movie doesn't make you wait till the till the till the third act to find out no, what they've yeah, done. Yeah. Um, and I well like I mean the opening line of dialogue is after I killed them I rubbed the or washed the gunpowder residue off my hand cleaned the gun and threw it in the Thames. And yeah, like we know he's killed somebody. We know he's a hitman. Yeah. We know that he did a job and ran away. And it's uh, clever to use the them as opposed like because it can be the singular or the plural. Yeah, and you know what? Until you just said that, I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, but now that you've said it, they did say them in the beginning, even though it was only supposed to be one. Um, Which also like can plays through as well when it, he looks at the piece of paper that the kid has 
and it's got like his list of whatever that he's he's praying for and it's like being moody bad at maths i think and then and then being sad and it's this really interesting sort of like he's looking at himself on paper almost, you know. Exactly. He's moody and sad the whole movie, and he's bad at math because he killed two people instead of one person. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's exactly that, right? And and um and I think that's part of this whole thing. Like in in that moment, his first kill in this hitman job, he essentially was killing his own innocence, and then like and then the manifestation of that is killing this innocent young boy, who's none of those are sins. And that's what he like. That's what he's asking forgiveness from God for, like being moody and sad. Like in my upbringing, in my Catholic upbringing, that wasn't considered a sin. By no, any no. Means. Uh, nor was being bad at math. They're they're not they're not punishable like offenses at all. It's just something that you know this boy is feeling bad about and wants to change, and you know which which makes it all the more kind of awful because they're he's clearly done nothing wrong and still ends up taking a bullet for it although and now this is totally a sidebar but the the bullet wound on his forehead really did not sell me on the kid being killed you know it's like a scrape across his forehead that like maybe took out some bone like he he would have been uncomfortable and probably more than uncomfortable but it didn't sell me on him being insta dead. Oh, I thought uh, like the way I always saw it was like there was a, like a healthy chunk missing from his forehead. To and... me, it just looked like a scrape with a little bit of like a little deeper. But like there was uh, no bone material or brain oh, material. I thought you could see. I actually thought you actually see like a whole hole into there, and I thought like a full bullet went into his brain. It looked like a a little half crescent. Hmm. I th- I, at least that's how I saw it. I thought it was actually pretty gory. Mm. Um, well, it is because I, it's a kid, right? Yeah. That's the thing is is regardless of, and I get why they did it that way because nobody nobody wants to have to make this kid gruesomely gory. Yeah. It's gory enough just imagining that this kid's taking a and, bullet, and that's true. Maybe all these times because the part a lot of the gore is implied by the uh, the the bullets and the squibs we see going off on the priest. And then the blood on on his note, on his little yeah, prayer yeah. note, um, yeah. And I guess it's the the head wound. It's so close; it's almost in minimal focus. You can barely make out what it is. Mm-hmm. But I think that's also implied because you don't want to be you don't want to be in the first <laughs> first act of a movie showing a bunch of dead babies, if especially if you're trying to ride a, like a kind of draw comedy comedy drama line well well especially with with the way you're trying to sell these characters too right because at the end of the day and i guess it's going back to the morality thing a bit but like you know they're they're bad people but they're all real people and that was one of the things about the writing and and the story of it that i i felt was really powerful was the fact that everybody in this movie was dynamic and they felt like real people it was just somebody having to trying to get through kind of the life that they had and and yeah they've done bad things but they're trying not to be bad people and you you're, you empathize with them because of that see i my take is that these are like i've always i agree that they're more real than two-dimensional characters because they all have good qualities and bad qualities and you know for 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 film having characters that have both good and bad qualities is surprisingly rare. And then yeah. therefore it makes them feel more real. But I would say that I, to me, they don't feel real cause they don't feel that grounded. They feel almost hyper real. Like they feel, um, if we go back to talking about snatch 
and the folkloric characters yeah. from there to here, you, you, you're making a comparison as though, like, similarly, they feel less like real humans and more like story ta- uh, fairy tale type well, characters I, not quite i mean yeah, yes in a way but only in in their in the grand nature of of their acts and stuff but it's just that these characters they just it just doesn't i don't know that any like i don't the dialogue shared between characters i don't know many people that speak like that or like it sounds it sounds comfortable and it, it sounds sure. nice when i hear all of this conversation and and maybe it's maybe this is how people in ireland and stuff speak to each other um with this kind of um callous honesty or whatever but you know he and he tries and you can see him you can see ray's character trying to play to the convention when he when they go to the tower and he's waiting for in the start of the movie when he's waiting for ken to go up and see it and then he talks to the american tourists who are stereotype right down yeah to their so waistlines. I, I, guess, I guess i should say that when I say everybody in this movie, I do not mean everybody in this movie. I mean our main three characters, no, four of, characters. Of course. And but, there's the, the ancillaries who are like what, caricatures of where they come from. But I just mean like, I mean, who who would afraid, like who would, because he dances around, for a second he dances around and he tries to play to the social convention. He dances around like, you guys shouldn't go up there or you wouldn't like it. He tries to like lie to them to like not be truthful yeah and then when they press him for the truth he's like you're a bunch of fucking elephants <laughs> and uh <laughs> all right and and i just don't like and i and fair enough there could be people that are like that in the real world I've met people like that um but it's just that um i don't know that that feels necessarily like if i guess i guess i'm i'm equating real as like the norm when that's not necessarily the same thing sure and they I mean, do I would they ar- do feel like real like they do feel like they could be characters it's just that there's just a lot of things that just for me feel yeah they just feel like they just felt hyper reality I, I, more than- I, okay i guess my i would argue that point only in that no dialogue in film really is how people speak. I mean, in conversation, people stumble over words. They they repeat themselves. They they um they pause for thoughts like I just did there. You know, they, like dialogue and writing of character and in movies is always going to be kind of hyper real because it's the pared down, easiest to digest sort of piece of dialogue that gets to the point and says what it needs to say perfectly. And nobody's that on the ball ever. But, but I felt like the characters themselves felt believable and they felt like they could be real whereas in snatch the characters like we said did feel very folkloric in the sense that they felt like they were exaggerated hyperbolic versions of of what they were meant to be and they were like this bar story character whereas to me these guys like ray and 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 canon and everybody else pretty much that was a main character didn't feel that way to me they felt like if this world were real and there was you know this kind of hitman which i'm i can't say i don't know if there is maybe there's maybe these types of things exist i'm sure they do but um it felt like that would be how those people were uh f- perhaps and because they're like a lot of what didn't feel that real to me necessarily i guess or felt i guess idealized movie romanticism was the is the chloe and ray relationship especially like their first dinner when they meet each other and you know she honestly he says what do you what do you do i sell drugs to blah blah, blah or i shoot ki- kids and priests 
Is there a lot of money in that? There is in priests, not so much in kids. Um, <laughs> do I look like someone that sells drugs? Do I look like someone who kills kids? Yeah. And priests? So okay. But so- like the and but they're like they have this like flirtatious macabre bonding thing that I guess to me that just felt that. I, it felt good. It, like it, I liked the the rhythm and the sound of it, and I liked all that. I just it just felt it didn't feel. I that doesn't feel real to me. But that does. But I'm not saying. But I. But also that's not my world. So maybe it is a, a real. Yeah, I thing. mean, I, I I bought that for a I guess for a couple reasons. Like that, I thought that that scene was great overall. But it felt it felt like like they were trying to get the first couple of weeks of relation of a relationship going in one session. So that you would later buy that they've sort of fallen for each other because they've connected more honestly than they have with other people. So you've got these two people who do kind of shady things for a living, admitting they're doing shady things and that they're kind of on the same level with each other. So they can therefore be open and honest and and maybe, you know, end up being the other half of that person in that relationship. Um but I also kind of felt like it was driven by a thematic purpose or not necessarily a thematic purpose, but it, it felt like a really, really powerful character moment for Ray specifically, because more than any other time, that's when we really see that he is the kind of person who makes jokes to hide from reality, which we've seen him doing a little bit in and out, but it's less about directly joking about real events and just sort of being humorous and callous and childlike to about other things and distracting himself. But here he's literally making a joke out of the fact that he killed this kid because he's too de- too upset and depressed and, and sad about what he's done to be able to not think about it. But he also needs to be in a better place for this date, so he makes jokes about it to alleviate it, whether yeah. she knows it or not. No, and absolutely. And, and yeah, and I think, you know, like given the opportunity to have the anonymity from the bad deed that he's that he's grieving right now that he's dealing with um the first thing he does is let someone like tells the tells the first person he meets what he did more more like like he confesses almost without instantly without confessing without confessing a little bit except she tells like they both are telling the truth in those moments other than the, the you know her leaving out the whole robbing tourists no part, but, but she <laughs> and they and she laughs it off and that kind of thing and he laughs off what she says except he knows that she is a drug dealer so then does she know that he is a hitman uh, which i have to assume so based on on how the rest of the scene plays out and based on the stuff at the end like like she knows he's being serious in in at least the fact that he kills people for a living, not necessarily that he shoots kids. I'm sure that that part she f- reads as a joke, and the rest of it maybe not. Um, but I, I I think I think yeah I think she understands the truth of it in the same way that he understands the truth of of what she's saying. That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else does. I mean, you know, there's the the Canadian kind of off to the side there who hears this whole convert like we clearly see him hear the whole conversation and he's up upset about the smoke in the face afterwards because it plays off as a joke but you know that like despite the fact that the world around them the world of like oh we're just average joes thinks it's maybe a joke they they have a deeper connection than that yeah uh, and i i think it also plays to th- that they're in their own world uh, to get like 
a little bit that they're yeah okay so i've talked myself into agreeing with you now but i don't agree with you i still think i still think that i felt the characters are real and everything felt very real and grounded and connected but but it's grounded and real and connected in a world that is separate from the regular world yeah i I guess and that's that is always one thing that i want in a movie is you establish the reality for the film and as long as everything fits into that those rules then i'm okay and i follow along and i don't think any characters broke out of the rules established by this film no in that way they feel real to themselves and real to this story so I guess I'm also agreeing with you. Um, I just I just mean to, to our actual reality. To me, they, this this feels okay. hyper real. But uh, right. it, but you're right. That is the that is a, an an inherent uh, thing within. If you're watching anything through the uh, film lens, there's always a hyper reality to it. I mean, come on. Ray is the guy who takes the last of the coffee at craft services. Come on. <laughs> what what do we expect of him other than to be? Which, by the way, was a great detail. This goes back a little bit to Cindy for a minute, but I, I don't think I've ever seen a de- an on-camera depiction of film set more accurate than the one that this movie shows us. Like, you know, there's the romanticized version in most other movies where you see, like, the stuff that people will, that the average person will understand and connect with about a movie set. But in this, there's, like, you see the lighting setups and you see the gels and the diffusion and you see people carrying stands around. And, you like, it's it felt like a real set. Like, the set deck and, and our production design of that whole segment of the movie those multiple segments was really really well constructed right down to the craft services and that little sound effect of the thermos running out of coffee as he's trying to fill it up i was like oh you you bastard some Uh, some poor technician is gonna come over there to get coffee and there's none not gonna be any left uh no absolutely and um and i and i also i like i do note that like the film itself not the you're right. The usual thing is to is what they're filming is the magical thing, but this whole thing, the magical thing, was the film, the whole filming itself, which I found interesting. And, um, and it does, and it, I mean, it all plays to the fantasy feeling of the end, the ending. Um, yeah, yeah. When they're going all the masquerade stuff, yeah. where it's like he's bleeding out, he's probably and, somewhat halluc- hallucinating or like feeling lightheaded in, in this sort of weird dream state of... And it's the first time, even though we're at set at Christmas, that we're seeing snow, but it's a fort. Yeah. Of course, they also show the machine that's making the snow that we're seeing. <laughs> and so, like, there's this... I don't know. The, um, it creates this really interesting quality to it. Um, the uh, the other thing, I, I guess I want one of the things I want one of the story points that I wanted to ask you that is the uh, like end of the second act for the for I think is the um, the assassination slash suicide scene. <laughs> so right. the the main scene the scene where where Harry finally or um, where Ken finally decides to go uh, that he's going to kill Ray. He sets his mind to it and he heads out that day and to the park and he finds him in the park and then as he's approaching him getting up the nerve to shoot him he sees him raise a gun to his own head and he stops him so i guess i kind of wanted you to walk me through what you how you felt about that scene and what you were thinking about those characters for the uh what they were thinking in that scene i guess okay yeah um i I, it was interesting because when right before that you see uh, you see Ray lying in bed crying and you're not sure if it's because he knows what's coming or, or if 
he's made up his mind about this suicide thing. And this is this is the moment where you realize that he's settled in. Like, he grabbed the bullets before, and you saw that. And if you were paying attention to the labels, you would know he was preparing for this and stealing himself for it. So it was... It was it, I found it interesting because it was both characters stealing themselves to do the same job that theoretically needed to be done. And, you know, uh, Ken says afterwards, oh, I wasn't actually going to do it. But the response of, it looked like you were going to go through with it is pretty accurate. Like, until I, I until the moment that Ray pulls out the gun and holds it to his own head, Ken was going to kill him. There was no doubt. And then he realizes how much pain this man is in and how much good he could do in the world if he were to find himself in, in a better situation. And that, I think, is what sways his... So, um, so you do think he was like gonna in those last few steps he was gonna raise? I, his I arm think he was gonna pull, pull the, the trigger. Tr- I think he was gonna pull the trigger and uh, until that gun. And came so out. the fact that he sees the the obvious pain in Ray is what he sees redemption or the uh, ability not for redemption. The ability for redemption, as he says later, the ability to change or the the capacity to change, because they talk before where he they have these conversations where. He can slowly learning that that Ray is distraught about having killed the kid. But until that point, what has he seen? He's seen this like jokey, dickish kind of dude who has no appreciation for culture, only wants to drink and get laid and do drugs and and has killed a kid. And, and so up until that point, there's like maybe some room for it, but you there's no visible projected sort of remorse or 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 pain that this act has caused because he's hiding it because as males in these sort of situations do they don't talk to each other about feelings and emotions they just sort of bury them and pretend like they don't exist um and so i think that coming into that scene he doesn't really understand the good that is still within ray you know it's this Darth Vader moment of there's still good in him. He can be saved. Um, but then when he sees that pain, that's when he really comes to understand it. And that's also when Ray opens up finally and just starts crying in front of him. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even, you know, he takes his head yeah, to his yeah. shoulder and everything, um, I, which I felt very, very symbolic, uh, was a very symbolic image. Um, yeah, I, I, I also, I mean, I also read in that moment because... Um, and I'm putting a lot of char- uh, things onto the Brendan Gleeson character, uh, the, the the Ken character. But, um, you know, uh, because he's Irish and because they're touring this area and they're they're in like any any hat and he has some reverence for Jesus's blood um, and all that. I, I felt his ca- character is potentially has either Catholic or I mean, depending on what part of Ireland, Protestant. Uh, well, he, uh, he literally talks about how he was raised religious and, and the things that you're taught to be true as a kid, it's hard to leave behind. So, you know, even if he well, doesn't and, truly believe, yeah. it's still there. And so that's why, like, even though I, I'm with you that he was going to kill him in that moment and the reason he's able to rationalize it's okay is because if I kill you, that's not 
there's no fault to to Ray in that moment. The fault is with Kang. Oh right, because Ka- the suicide is. But a, a but major if he goes sin. to kill himself, then Ray is only furthering, darkening his soul, etc. That whole it. art art yeah gallery thing. Yeah, with exactly. The purgatory and, in hell. Yeah. And yeah, well, and in that in that moment, I also found it interesting because they're looking at things, and and Ray in the art gallery is. He looks at um, Hieronymus Bosch's *The Last Judgment*. Well, but the bef- but the ones before that that he's not that Ken seems to be finding interesting, but um, we keep seeing Colin Farrell's face reaction to things like uh, I think it's the flaying of Serratides uh, or something. Uh, like the that. judgment of Cambyses, Cambyses is the one that he's yeah, yeah. Cambyses he's looking at where he's being he's the yeah. The, so it's like a gr- judge like or a, whatever yeah that was from from bribes. Greek history and all that, and so it um, and. But that's all like this, this real, like it's realistic paintings at, at least. Whereas the Hieronymus Bosch thing is this, is this weird, dark fantasy thing where th- demons are consuming other people. And that's the one he responds to. He responds to like, yes, it's also the last judgment thing, but he was all, he was looking at other paintings of judgment. There was, well, Ken's looking at the death or the, skeleton death character. and the miser yeah coming to collect whatever he's collecting from him i yeah i read i looked a little bit into it because i didn't really know yeah i'm not i'm not an art historian and i i don't really know didn't really know much about it but i was really curious to see what those paintings were and and that first one the death and the miser is is about death coming for this rich merchant type who has hoarded all of his money and gold but the idea is at the end of the day all of his hoarding and all of his earthly uh greed would does not stop death he's trying to pay death off i think or something is what he's doing right so that doesn't work that's a judgment point so is the trial of of Cambyses. The uh, judgment of Cambyses. judgment of Cambyses. Cambyses uh, the second being the emperor who or king or whatever his title was that was judging the guy who took bribes. Right. Of course. Okay. And um, yeah, so he anyways, but so those are all judgments, but the ones he, he responds to is like the, 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 the weird, uh, like, well, to use it again, hyper real one, the one that is outside of the norm. The one is that that's um, because I, and I, I would, I would say that maybe here's a, it's just a thought, a theory. Yeah. But I feel like maybe that has to do with the, the unknown of it like to to ray the other two they're a known factor it's you broke a law you broke your moral code or whatever and and you are you're punished for it but this other one is this big unknown of of like is this a real situation could all of this be true is this you know it's an exploration of greater things and higher judgments than just the judgment of of man upon himself yeah um yeah i guess yeah in my head it's still like i had a like i was reading it more with like because seeing him as the childy kind of thing that like he was less interested in 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 the in reality than he is in in his understanding of reality i guess yeah okay see i i'm in i'm in i'm very interested in this in this ray as child reading i and i see it in certain moments like when he is literally behaving childishly and maybe it's just because of the things he does and the person he is as a character but i just have such a hard time picturing that sort of naive innocence in him that it comes with being childlike and i guess 
I guess part of that is that even though I know that that was his first job and I know that that's, it doesn't feel like, like he watching that movie, it felt like he was a part of that world thoroughly and was more experienced in it. And it isn't until you get to the end and you find out it's his first job, but that, uh, that reading is already in my head anyway. So I'm, I'm having a hard time shaking that. Yeah, no, I, I and I'm not saying that he it's the perfect metaphor or anything. And, no, and it, no, and but it, I think it's a valid does, a valid read. It is more the lining up with the psyche thing that I, I that's the that was my first initial thing was the Freudian psyche thing and him being the id, um, the one that works just on instinct and just on that. But I, I also the no filter part. But I also think getting to the very end of the film that um, his realizing he doesn't want to die i think is also a very adult thing that not that like i mean kids are afraid of death but i certainly didn't but like aren't but that's what i'm saying you don't really understand it because it's well you also and therefore you don't understand because if you don't understand death and or don't um i don't think you can truly understand life uh, like you need to understand the finality of life to appreciate life but i also like i specifically remember to go on a personal anecdote for a moment yeah. of like the first time I ever really understood that death was a thing. It, I, I say specifically remember, but I like I know the moment that I came to recognize as a as a younger child that life ends and that people die and things. And that was when my great grandma died. And and it was sort of this like switch moment in a way where where you come to recognize that things are don't go on forever and it's i don't know it's a it's a weird coming to terms with but before that there's yeah i mean you know the 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 television sitcom version is there's a pet that dies in the family and that's how you introduce the kids to it and then a grandparent passes which is sad but you know old people die that's a thing so then they get used to that idea and then eventually they realize that like oh everyone dies and I'm gonna die babies and everything like there's like death is all around us. Yeah. Um, death is everywhere and, it's everywhere uh, but um, no Hopefully but I they think, don't become a recluse. but I think the but I think and all but I, I mean I remember too uh, you know like try like learning a, like about death or I guess under starting to understand death when I was a kid and it was through pa- grandparents passing and that kind of thing but also like again and it's again. It was, you know, I had a comfortable upbringing and like I didn't have any young friends pass or didn't have any people's even I don't even think any of my uh, friends parents passed until I was like well older, like, you know, well into my teens. I'm talking like this child innocence death thing. I'm talking like eight and under kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, And but the other thing is because time is such a weird thing. And, you know, when you're eight years old, someone who's 18 seems like an adult and like this person who's got their life together when you know when you get to 18 you realize you have know nothing and or 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 and you're still a kid and me when i got to 25 and realized that adults are not really any different than yeah anyone else exactly but and so this and so i guess my whole thing is that like even once i realized what death was as a child i wasn't like i didn't ever really fear it because i'm young and full of potential and death is an old person's problem it's 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 something that I won't have to deal with for years. And, and, you know, and you live your life that way a bit, you know, you take stupid risks as, as a kid. And even I'm not going to drown in this river when I go swimming. And, you know, and even, even by the time I understood it more as a teen, you still have, you know, those, you still have that invincibility of teen, whatever hope and, and and, uh, like an idealized view of the world. So I guess you still do. Oh, oh, sorry. And just to, just to that point, it's just that like, 
it's and so th- that's how I was fitting it into the narrative of Ray as a as this kid is that the like he realized his whole maturation is at the end of this movie when he like finally accepts life and like he accepts the the realization of death and then therefore because before that he does seem to have this kind of innocence about it where where he either doesn't really doesn't really have his head wrapped around it or something and then when he the suicide thing is like oh maybe he doesn't really understand the significance of of this death that he wants to bring to himself. Yeah, it's um, it's because and because he has the line about he says in, when he just as he's breaking down crying on that bench he's like he says something like I want to be a dead I want to be a dead man and he goes No you don't he yeah. just want the pain to stop that because that's what he wants in that moment he's he ha- he's he's torn up about what happened and he's he's in a ton of pain and obviously like all of, we're talking about him in glo- <laughs> kind of glowing terms even though he did a terrible thing and and the true victim is the is the kid i'm not saying the priest cuz the priest might have done like yeah we don't the know pri- the reason the that priest harry was wanted on the priest harry's killed, bad but... list for a reason now if he's on harry's bad list and harry's a bad guy it might have been a good reason um <laughs> But, but I mean, also, there's a lot of connotations that come with Catholic priests. Yeah, and, yeah, and I and, and I think well. that's very. And I mean, you know, I think that's also. It was it, this movie had a like it was a priest he was killing for a reason. Yeah, and and I I wonder though what that because there's an argument for different reasons about that, but I think that like the recurring Catholic imagery and the Christian imagery of of death and judgment and. And all the churches and everything that it goes through. Like I, I, I think that it's I think that part of the priest being the target is to continue potentially keeping people's brains in that cycle of of that redemption and judgment. I, I agree. I also think it's something that going to the writer and director, I think that from his upbringing. I think um, when you look at his other movies that follow this, Seven Psychopaths and Three Billboards Outside of Ebing, Missouri, Missouri um, both of them have very strong um, religious and Catholic undertones and themes and characters in, in them. Um, I did find it interesting that the reverence Ken put on the Christian Catholic imagery that I wasn't sure what to do with um, in a lot of ways because I, I like I, I found it really fascinating that he he couldn't he didn't know what he believed yet he must have believed enough that he put that kind of reverence on the the theoretical blood of christ or on like all of these churches and things like there's this very interesting dichotomy in himself which now there's that interview i don't know if you saw uh, or not um but uh martin mcdonough has said that when he he went to bruges and what inspired the movie was that he went there and for the first few days it was amazing and it was all these beautiful art this beautiful architecture and churches and then after a couple of days he got in, insatiably bored with the same thing and and that this movie became this projection of the two interiors of himself that that experienced Bruges in two entirely different ways and I think in in a lot of ways that sort of two inner people uh comes out in can a lot too with his like christianity versus not versus what do you believe versus what don't you believe yeah that i wasn't entirely sure where to go with but no absolutely i i will say this the as far as like um giving reverence to uh to religion and more specifically christianity and more even more specifically catholicism 
um, being someone who was raised in a Catholic household, I, 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 I still kind of do, even though <laughs> this is tough if my mom's listening, <laughs> but, but uh, even though, you know, my faith isn't what it once was, um, I still give great reverence to a lot of that stuff and a lot of those traditions, um, partly because they were like, they were somewhat of that made up the culture of my childhood, but also right. because like <laughs> it's, it's, it sinks, it's, it sinks into you so much that there's always a little bit like, ah, hedge your bets. <laughs> like there's a, there's well, a, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe it isn't. I'd rather be on his good side if it is true though. <laughs> there's always, there's a, at least uh, I found in my life. Like I, I, um, yeah. Anyway. So, uh, like I, I understood Ken very much in those moments where he was, you know, cause he's broken up and he's obviously, he's, a um, he's a, He's a bit of a broken person himself, and we find out later that's due to the the death of his wife, yeah, yeah, and the the love of his life and that kind of thing. And you see that he had that was a major turning point in his life, and he kind of probably broke up a bit with his relationship with God in that moment, and was like, "How could you allow this to happen?" And this pseudo fa- father figure, uh, other than God, comes into his life in the form of Harry in that moment Which, and helps that, him get the revenge. That's something I wanted to touch else. on. I, I it flashed into my brain when you were talking earlier, and we kind of drew away from it. But that father figure idea is really, really interesting because you've got this sort of very much a like father son relationship almost between Ken and and Harry that really, really like the the dialogue when they're sitting in that coffee shop talking afterwards and they have this like there's anger and there there's hurt and there's there's yelling and whatever but like it's a very amenable conversation between two people who have had something come between them they're professionals they have a thing to do and and all of that and there's which we learn as they're in the top of the tower that um you know there's this whole uh almost father son love relationship that that Ken has at least on his half but but at the same time this sense of like something has to be done here and and in that same way there seems to be this similar relationship with ken and and ray where it's like this tri-dimensional like harry being the grandfather ken being the father and like ray being the boy which he's literally called in many which is why i guess when we opened this i said it was a really great character study it's this sort of, despite being about kind of killing and fighting and this like movie about criminals and stuff like the the methodical, philosophical, like just dialogue conversations that are happened throughout that it, it was just really fascinating to see all of those relationships play out throughout the movie in really effective ways. And I, I do think I, I, I felt that relation the, that like, yeah, that tri-generational relationship mm-hmm. you're referring to. I, I do feel that as well. Um, I also felt that, like, in that, um, as a lot of uh, younger people today see older generations as, like, rigid and conservative and that kind of thing. And, and Harry is very much the embodiment of rigid and conservative. Well, it's, it's strong among thieves. He's like, he has a code and he will not... He will not. Yeah, um, because you know he shoots himself at the end. Yeah, he doesn't apply. He he doesn't apply his life to the to the to the laws and frameworks of society. But he has his own laws and framework that he lives his life by. And 
as long as and he can go to sleep at night knowing that he follows those laws whatever moral code whatever whatever those fall into yeah um but that and i think that's somewhat a way that a lot of people experience life like there's like most people live i would say live their lives within the bounds of bounds of law but there's all like down to minor things but everyone there's there's little boundaries and and laws everyone pushes that they feel are that to their own self are are okay i haven't met very many people in my life who did not ha- come up against one law or another that they didn't agree with and yeah. were willing to bend. I mean, the easiest one is speeding, right? Yeah, exactly. Every, everyone, oh, I need to get there quicker. And that's how you, for whatever reason, that's how like you justify breaking the r- rules in that moment. And you're able to, you, you get to wherever you're going and you sleep comfortably or you're, you're fine with yourself. Yeah, yeah. Because you've justified... A that you were able to do it safely or whatever, however you justify it to yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. And I and I, but I again, I think that's a big part of what this movie is, which is, um, I guess uh, all of those things I was kind of talking about with like how we see life and how how everything's through our own little prism and that's what defines everything and that kind of helps shape the morality. And while there may be intrinsic good and bad things in the world, um, we all come at them from a different way. Um, but also, I think this movie is a bit about um, a bit about masculinity as well. I think it's it um, um, gets that point partly um, because a lot of the voices of reason come from women, and yeah, especially yeah. the the um, the the clerk who works at the the bed and breakfast or the the, the, the hotel owner. Yeah, the co-owner of the <laughs> hotel. Uh, that's right. She co-owns it with her husband. She writes that on the note. Um, funny. Um, also that she hand wrote that note with all those swear words <laughs> <laughs> is also yes. like, like and didn't, didn't filter those. Curses no. And at all. like, but that's also the, the non real part that like, that's a, like, that's a funny bit. Like, because you hear Ray Fiennes doing the narration for it. And then you, it, it does the actual insert on the note and you realize that she's written it all out verbatim. And then added the thing at the end where she says, like, I'm not just a receptionist. I co-own this place. Well, and then you can just imagine this, like, this posh sounding British gentleman on the phone who is obviously raging at the fact that his people are not there. Just yelling at this poor woman on the phone, like yelling this note. And then, like, you get all that. You got it done. Oh, great. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, bye. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's just that, well, it's in the climax of the film when Ray and Harry are there and they're doing that discussion from upstairs to downstairs and she's the referee in the yeah, middle. Yeah. At one point, she's like, why don't you just put your guns down and go home? Like, But but that also, to that point, that last sequence with her there is part of why I didn't feel that the lack of reality with her like transcribing that note because she is she seemed to me the sort of person who like, she has seen everything, you know. She's had tourists from all over the world come in here. She's had incidents. She's had, and she's just got this sort of like calm, collected, rational sort of thinking that she's just like, this is just what it is, and I'm just used to this. And like, sure, she's gonna be a mother and whatever else, but she's not, yeah, not used to See, the the, the it, type of people that she's dealing with. It felt it felt more like like a mother admonishing her two children in a way, like like. Yeah, yeah. But like, it felt like a very, like, boys will be boys. Why don't you just put your toys down and go play together somewhere else? Like, yeah, I'm not whatever. I'm not disagreeing. I think that that's true. But I think that that's also part of that note thing. If she's just, like, she knows 
what who and what she's dealing with and she's gonna do her job and whatever but like also there's that like but rationality on the end of i own this place you know no no but i guess my point with her saying that in that moment is she isn't in their prism like of reality like she doesn't see reality the same way they do harry's there because some part of his code of honor has been broken I need to, for honor, come and kill these people who I couldn't get done before. And yeah, and Ray, I don't know. Ray's trying the gun thing when they're at the tower. And and sorry, this is totally off, but I'm just when he's like he refuses to shoot Ken because he won't pick up his gun. Yeah, you know, like that sense. No, but uh, it's just that like because that's not her reality in that moment. Yeah, yeah, like she for a moment to me she shatters the like veil of the construct they've built and she's like you can just put this down and go home i think i think i finally had clicked on what you were saying which is not that that scene was not her being unbelievable but rather she's breaking the realm of like what is the reality in these two characters lives? yeah yeah and i i I see and it it, to me it it feels like because she's just like like this is like to her, she's like, this, this is, is crazy. This is crazy. This Y'all is silly. What do you do? Like wh- who, what mature <laughs> person deals with a situation like this? Now she doesn't know that Ken has jumped out the Like she doesn't know everything about the no, situation, sure, obviously, but... but to her, there would be no situation in which this is the result that needs to happen. But there's that to like, at least the, you know, when I first and I that I didn't read that by the way the, that her part of this at all in the first thing I was just like oh that's kind of a like a like not not funny and haha but funny and like what an absurd situation to have these two guys who are trying or are both who have both killed and are both trying to kill in this moment being divided only by a stairwell and a pregnant woman who's like let's be serious and, <laughs> come on uh, guys calm down and that's how i read it the first time and it wasn't until um i showed this movie to some other people and it was a, a female friend of mine who was like she's she actually didn't enjoy the movie as much as i did and part of her like her reasoning was she was like the movie to me was over and that like she's like that's the end of the movie now i don't agree <laughs> with that but i do but i did i think get to what her note was about which is in that moment like she sh- she shatters the reality of those two characters for a moment to me and you do start to go like oh yeah right all this gunplay and handling it like this is just what a weird macho stupid masculine way to respond to this situation okay here's a here's a thought then um i mentioned very briefly uh before but maybe now's the time to circle back to it the idea of caricatures and how so many people in this movie are just caricatures of the places that they're from. Uh, I mean, like the the stereotypical sort of like caricature American overweight kind of person who's, you know, just being a tourist and going around doing their thing. Or like the caricatures of like the Canadian who's upset because he got smoke blown in his face or, you know, the whatever. But there's also this sort of idea of like, almost like the movie in and of itself in that regard is like this caricature of what an action movie in kind of Hollywood style is where you have these these fighters these like hitmen whatever and your expectation is that they're going to do what you expect from these movies and they're going to fight and they're going to have their like honor bound whatever and there's this little moment where that illusion is broken and you realize 
and the movie's almost showing you that sort of like this is just kind of a funny caricature of like this sort of genre of film in and of itself well to the point i didn't write it down and i meant to but i'm fairly sure harry the ray fines character responds to her like this is the shootout or something like that he literally says this is the shootout like 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 self-referencing the fact that this is like the climax of the movie yeah yeah yeah. why are you doing this well this is the this is in an action movie this is what comes next that's why we're (laughs) doing this we have to this is the this is the plot demands it yeah (laughs) and and that's what i found like that's why that scene to me it is a really like i mean you can write a whole essay just on that scene and the blocking of that scene as well yeah yeah, because nothing i don't remember it all plays like perspective to perspective again bringing up perspective but like ray is looking through the the slats of the stairwell down and harry's obscured by this uh pregnant woman and And also the wall he's hiding and yeah and then harry's looking up and he can see a bit of ray but they're both they both can't get at each other and he and, almost tries to take the shot, but then he's like, "I can't accidentally shoot this other person." Yeah, you know? and I, but I, and but I do think, and I, I just think that moment really is trying to show how absurd this type of lifestyle is a little bit, like it, like this macho lifestyle, because the the whole like, okay, I'm gonna jump out the window, and you come <laughs> out, and he's like. Where you're gonna jump in the canal? Yeah, this, it's a big effing canal. Like, uh, which way is it? Left or right? What are you talking? I just got. And then it's, it's like all this like, honor-bound sort of like I'm gonna try and escape, and I'm gonna give you the opportunity to try and catch me. Yeah. Or vice versa, I'm gonna try and kill you, but I'm gonna give you the opportunity to defend yourself. Well, and it's it's and the, and I guess to that point, like I I now that you're saying that i i used to read him in the boat as kind of an arrogant move saying he can't hit me from there but it, but why isn't he ducking maybe he's giving him that shot like i said i would give you your shot and you can take your shot and they but i'm so far away i don't think you can hit me but also i'm giving you the chance here. yeah like i'm i'm being honorable by providing you with the chance but i also feel comfortable in providing you this chance because i feel safe yeah, I feel yeah. I'm at a safe distance or whatever. Which, unfortunately, he was not. No. Is he dead? Do you uh, think he dies? So, yeah, I do. But I also... <laughs> <laughs> I um I don't think it matters. No, no. Well, it does and it doesn't. I say the reason I, I think it matters internally is because there is this continuous dialogue about redemption and about judgment and about and the whole movie revolves around ken sacrificing his life to try and give this boy a chance at redemption and a shot for ray to live a good life and be a good person and at the end of it if he dies then he doesn't get that because all he's done is since having this revelation and since trying to make a a good person out of himself all he's done is get arrested uh, get bailed out by somebody who he's now stolen from, and then she spent money to bail him out, and then they made out a bit in the in like the plaza, and then he runs away and gets somebody else killed in the process of trying to escape and save his own life. So if he dies, he finds no redemption. He does nothing good with his life, and he only causes more pain and doesn't save the next kid, as they talk about earlier. But if he survives, then he has a chance. And there's that, like, in internal in the internal story of how you tell yourself his life plays out afterwards, there's this opportunity for him to redeem himself. So I think in that regard, it matters. 
Um, I, I guess my whole thing was that the redemption is in the moment where he chooses to want to live like he wants to live but also i guess he's not doing anything to redeem himself but like, on, he's not redeeming no, no. the death and, he's caused well no it's and and it is that like you know they they there are uh people that have been interviewed that, um who've survived suicide attempts and stuff and many of them talk about like the moment after they perform the task which they think will kill them um being instantly regretful and that kind of thing so to have a character um it's kind of hard to say they found redemption if in the moment they're dying they don't want to die but um but and and i guess you're right but it like i guess um the turning the turning the turning your boat towards the 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 horizon of <laughs> redemption riding into the sunset if you to will. me felt like felt like the redemption that was ne- it was all, all the redemption needed for that character because if if this is a morality play those three guys are, while they again they have their own morality structure but the three main main men in this movie um for all of them to die is also like to me would also read okay for everything they've done because yeah. the one thing that everyone agrees on through the whole movie is colin farrell deserves to die for what he did at the yeah, other yeah, I mean, other true. place every, every every character except for um the drug dealer film person that i've just lost the name of chloe chloe yes everybody except for her but she doesn't really know but yeah she he never tells her so that's that's i guess the follow-up to that but and and i don't i don't disagree i think that i think that either way there is some redemption to be found, but I think that depending on how you you like to, because I I love movies that are open ended because you can kind of think on how things would go. Some some yeah. people view Which them is... in different ways. Like maybe you you are the kind of person who likes to imagine how that person's life would go afterwards. And if that's the case, it is especially important whether he survives or not. No, which, um, but which is I guess why I said it doesn't matter because the ambiguity of the ending is. I like was the enjoyable part for yeah. me with that was the enjoyable part of the ending for me because yeah, I can go, Oh, well, you know, he survives him and Chloe get out of there and they do like a low rent Bonnie and Clyde across <laughs> Europe together or something, uh, uh, you know, like killing less, but doing bad things. Um, or maybe good things. Maybe. I mean, may, but, sure, maybe or they like sell a, drugs to people. But uh, like... Yeah, like a, a, a Robin Hood uh, style, like <laughs> helping out the poor type of thing or something. Sure. But like, but also they, um, you know, him dying in that moment, to me, the story still works as well. Uh, yeah, I, so I, for I agree. Having, I was for just... having it an open ending, I think, is the more interesting ending because it provides... Yes. Yeah, it provides the audience member the chance to. I, th- I think it's the only way the movie should have ended. I was just curious what your opinion was of whether he survived or not, because <laughs> in my head I kind of initially thought he did, and that's only because like the ambulance is there and whatever. But there's like there's so many arguments for both directions, and maybe I just wanted him to survive because I was because the whole movie you're just like that's what you're rooting for. You want him to make it, and then. Yeah, I just, I guess with the whole dum-dums thing, uh, well, I, yeah. I just didn't think there was a possibility that he survives that with what no. it would do to his organs. But Especially considering how what it did to, to Jim's head. <laughs> yeah, it, it blew off his head. Um, 
uh well that i for me that's most of the stuff i had like mainly on i think there's one thing we should touch about just because we've been talking a lot about morality so i think that we can't walk away from this movie without touching on some of the touchier sort of well that's what i wanted to get into it was like i guess i I was gonna get into a bit of like a bit of that but what what that was it was that this so this movie has a lot of uh, so it was 2008 not that not that long ago to my perspective yeah there's full humans that can almost drive now that were born (laughs) that year (laughs) um um but uh or a couple years away from that but um uh so yeah so there's a lot of a lot of stuff in the dialogue that is very offside for modern parlance the least um you know as far as deter like talking about someone's uh mental acuity using the r word uh, often and Uh, talking uh, a lot about race and uh, yeah uh, like obsessively so yeah um um, which is a kind of a theme with his characters in multiple movies. Uh, Seven Psychopaths has the same. I mean, Ebbing, Missouri has like full on ra- like racism is a theme in that one. So here's here's where my brain is, I think, on that, because I, I feel like I it's an interesting when I got into it the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is like just something that the director is is like didn't really think about or like why is this in the script what is the importance of this that we're focusing on it so heavily and part of my concern at first was like oh well i wonder if this is him getting out something that he thinks and feels or is this serving a greater purpose and if so is that purpose that it's serving justifying its being there and now I haven't seen three billboards yet, um, but from everything I've heard about it, it's a lot more of a, um, you know, it's an anti-racism movie more yeah. than it is a racism movie, which makes me oh, certainly. more inclined to believe yeah. that the intention with all of this is in not just character like development and presentation, but it is, it's meant to go to that perspectives thing where you are... Somebody is saying these things, and you, and or I guess the, a better example is with the talk about the race war when the the uh, when Jim is really high on cocaine when they're having that little party thing, um, and and everybody is very off put by it, and then later he's like, oh well, that's just the cocaine talking. Like I don't think that way, and it's like, well, there's this perspective aspect of you have no idea what he thinks. Is he a racist or is he? Was he really high and just like spouting random nonsense? And and it's like, it's hard to tell, but one way or another, it makes you uncomfortable and it's hard to reconcile whether it's justifiable to be there or not. Well, um, in that situation, particularly though, there are characters in the room and in this, in our, in this moment, it's like the characters we've been following who are pushing back and questioning him. Yeah, and it. I guess that, that, that was, um, that, I guess part of that too is that like the movie does not forgive those moments the movie does not condone the things that people are saying yeah and even ray who is the perpetrator of most of the commentary is like okay this is too far like i I, like looking in a mirror almost in some ways maybe yeah um and but i i guess i i i think the main reason that like 
part of that was brought up in that moment story-wise is to get to Ken's background backstory. Right, yeah. Um, but I also, I do think um, Martin McDonough uses kind of shocking language as um, a way to draw attention to characters a little bit um, and kind of, I guess deal with taboos in an like he talks about like he uses taboo language and stuff like it puts taboo language in in characters um partly because contextually um he then tells you whether the character is good or bad regardless of the use of certain things like certain right um, for example the fact that we still despite like uh ray's repeated use of of more offside commentary and yeah and phrases we still, at the end of the day, understand him to be a good person who is not, uh, is not prejudiced uh, necessarily, or at least we still support him despite that. Yeah, and and like his character seems to have this like so, <laughs> like his character has like brings up the Vietnamese all the time, but it, it's in reference to when he's referring to Americans. Because in his head, the Vietnamese are the first ones who kicked America's ass. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's like, they he's, lost that war. So and... in his head, he's like, so he's always re- referencing them, and that's why it's so confusing to the Canadian guy. Um, but anyway, which I love that they make that little reference, and then they never call back to it. So yeah, that, like, yeah, if, yeah. You're, if you don't, if you're not thinking about that, maybe you miss it. But like that little, that little side, like, ah, oh, brilliant. Um, but like, it's, it's, so his obsession with race and I, and I think it also might come from like perhaps, um, and again, I'm very much generalizing, but, um, um, Ireland itself being somewhat a secluded Island, uh, Island has a very distinct culture. And then as it started to get, as it's getting more multi multicultural as everywhere in the world is, um, throughout time, uh, I mean, this this would be less of a thing, but um, I, I think to a certain generation of people, the oddity of other cultures—not that they're odd, but just that they're odd to you or odd to to, to what it, what is what you know what you know to, and yeah. stuff—becomes um, um, a point of interest, becomes a point of like examination or 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 trying to talk about it to understand, like to so um to at least to me in my experience like people who've had slightly more sheltered upbringing will sometimes say some things that feel more offside and i mean there's i'm not defending his use of like the r word or any of really any of the stuff he's saying but i'm just saying that like there's like this layer of innocence sometimes if you aren't used to these but he's lived in london but i mean but but if you aren't used to these cultures and stuff that it like that you want to talk about it and you want to like, cause you want to understand it and you haven't had the opportunity to, to, to talk to people in, in the world from these different places. And so you have these Cole's notes version. Oh, America, they're a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, fat, loud people <laughs> and, uh, the Vietnam kicked their butts and, uh, and like, Oh, like, blah, blah, like whatever you, whatever about all these different places and like, and Vietnam is really tough because it's a small little place, but it beat up a superpower. Like, yeah, yeah. so like, that's why he'd want them on it. Like, he's like, they wouldn't <laughs> want to be on their side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't want them on your side. You're crazy. Um, 
and that kind of like all of that stuff i like i don't think the discussion of like bringing up different countries cultures or races is racist is racist to bring up that type of stuff even in the mouth of a white person it's racist if you're talking about that in a denigrative fashion yeah and, yeah and or kind of or or in a way that would uh cause some sort of offense to the people who you are yeah, talking if about. you're trying to like um, subvert th- that culture's norms or whatever but yeah, yeah. with whatever you're saying and stuff like that like uh, yes but but it's yeah i you're right I, I i don't think that it's problematic to discuss the fact that there are different cultures and different ways of viewing the world and that people while all the same in in our genetics and uh, and in you know uh, so many ways also have a lot of things that make us different and that is something that we should celebrate and we should we should pay attention to well and when ken's telling him that story about how he the only innocent guy he killed was the brother of somebody who he was killing yeah and he was like uh, he's a lollipop man which is a crossing guard in the the uk i had to i had to look that up um but and it's and they try and i think again they specifically a school crossing guard yeah they have ray saying um they have ray saying um uh you know unless he has a weapon and then like a bottle and then he says he knows well, karate or he could it could be his hands what if he knows karate oh what 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 is he a 50 year old chinese lollipop man and but that even that moment because there it's reference to karate which is famously a japanese martial art and then he says chinese so it's showing the naivete and the stupidity of of ray or cultural ignorance of ray yeah, yeah. in that moment as well and I, but I, because I, I don't think he he's not, doesn't mean it in a mean way. He's just like, why would a fifty-year-old white dude from the UK know no karate? karate? Yeah. What is this guy? Is he from? And then he gets the c- country wrong, and <laughs> uh, and I just I don't know. I, and but yeah, uh, yeah, and but McDonough uses shocking language, like it's a th- like from his short film Six Shooter to Seven Samurai to or Seven Samurai Seven Psychopaths <laughs> uh, to uh, to. Uh, three billboards it they all it, like all char- characters will say i think geez it's been a while since i th- saw three billboards but i think the n-word is used in that a few times and that kind of thing and so like he uses shocking language but he generally puts it in characters um for a reason because it draws your attention to that character and whether yeah. like um but i could see watching this movie through a more modern lens that um the you know if, if if in the first act you bump up a bunch of that language you might it might ruin the rest of the viewing for yeah, you yeah i i think it is definitely important to note that for if you haven't seen it and you're planning on watching it like be prepared that there is there is some offside conversation that happens there is some stuff that can that can be off-putting um but i also think it is like like we said it's important to note that i don't think the movie is condoning it i don't think the movie is presenting it in a way that is positive it's just using it in in fleshing out and exploring these characters and whether or not uh that is something that certain people would agree was valid and justifiable or not is up to personal opinion in a lot of ways you know and maybe it's not a movie for you just because of that but i think that there's something important to be gleaned from the way that it's used and and i i agree and i think um yeah and but i like i think generally it's it's to also like because i think we all when we're younger um taboo and 
and um, you know, like you know, the the words, things you aren't allowed to use, and taboos, and things like that, have more of an exciting feel to them. They have more of like, and his, this character, it almost it's especially he uses a seesaw metaphor at one point, and it um, it's as almost as if he's doing like a Mad Libs of taboo and offensive words in a row kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, not offensive, but like it, when you put them all together, it becomes offensive, and and it's um, uh, and it it's it's more. I think it goes to that kind of idiness, that non like that like no self control, that just saying whatever comes into your head, and and that kind of and to to you to trying to use a taboo because you're deriving some sort of pleasure from saying something naughty. Yeah, and it's yeah, not yeah. it's not you're not being divisive or trying to hurt somebody in that moment. You're just getting some sort of sense of personal enjoyment out of doing something you know you shouldn't. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're just being naughty, and yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, and I, I think um, I think obviously that's you know that's not we shouldn't be doing that, and that's not a good thing. But it's it goes to his character, I think, too. As yeah, well, yeah, it's it's an outward is, expression of something that I think a lot of people. Whether whether they like it or not, have inside them that they whether they are able to repress it or not. And like I'm a heavy set guy, and I mean I don't get necessarily offended by fat jokes or anything. Um, so it's not that it's definitely not the same thing as being like offended by some of the more serious things brought up. But like you know when he's running away from the patriarch of the American tourist family, ah, yes, and he's like at a slight jog, and the guy's getting. <laughs> He's just staying just out of his reach, and the guy gets tired, and then, you know... Uh, and then the joke later about some American having a heart, heart attack, attack getting half, up the tower. Up the tower. Yeah. Um, no, it's... Uh, but, I mean, that... I, I la I Almost every time I had seen... Like, for a long time I had seen this movie, I laugh at that moment. But part of the laughter of the moment is the absurdity of, of just that image. Like... Uh, one person chasing another person, and that person just out of re is. It also feels very childlike, very like dancing around people in the in the playground at school when you're when you've insulted well, some and, kid. Yeah, that you're tag, than. you're it, and I'm just staying yeah. out of your and and uh, yeah, and I don't know, like it's so. I guess part of that is why I I've never taken great offense to, but I'm also not the subject of the of the offending slurs in this. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, other than the fat ones, but, but again, uh, so like, I don't know, I like, I, so I don't know that I can say that this isn't an offensive film, but it, it wasn't offensive to me. Yeah. Fair, fair. Well, with that spoken of, um, I think we're getting on to the, uh, the conclusion unless you've got more to add. Well, just, I just wanted to talk just for a brief moment and perhaps this should have, this would have fit better at the head of the podcast, but I just wanted to talk about Martin McDonough himself. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause okay. I think he's a really interesting guy. Um, he's the youngest of, I don't know. I, well, I know he has an older brother who's also a filmmaker. Um, and he's the, he's the younger brother. Um, He's also a playwright and and was a far more successful playwright than he was a filmmaker for a while anyway, and and he got into filmmaking later in his in his artistic career, um, and then there's that crazy fact about him that he's the at, at 27 years old he was the first uh, English playwright since Shakespeare to have 
four simultaneous plays running in the London's West End. Dang. And um, and yeah, and he was he's been quite successful. I don't know if he's won, but he's definitely been nominated for Tony Awards in the states for Broadway plays, and and he's has had a great amount of success from there. And I I think um, I think that comes across in his dialogue. I think they're they're um, while not all plays are musicals, I think the dialogue in plays have has a more musical quality to it. I think it's written because it's, it's written. It's to be, almost in meter. Yeah, and because it's yeah because it's written to be performed, it has that has a tempo to it because it, because it's being performed live and it it will people are more engaged that way, and I and I find um because martin mcdonough in a lot of his movies also uses like repeated dialogue like characters saying the same thing in different ways multiple times in a row Mm -hmm. like you're going to the store the store the store you're going to the store like or like in bruges in bruges for a job yeah yeah well like yeah i was yeah yours is from (laughs) yeah (laughs) i couldn't think of any from the actual movie but they do it a few times it's in the mouth of more than one character but when you listen to it, it provides this rhythm in this, and and um, and I think that was one of the things that I felt so comfortable a in, refrain kind in of. the framework of this film because of Martin McDonough's past and his his ability, his his playwright ability. I, I found his dialogue really really easy, rolled over the rolled over my back really easy. That or whatever. Dialogue and writing by far is the I think the hardest component. Uh, maybe this is kind of subjective because everything is a little subjective, but but dialogue writing I think is one of the hardest and most challenging. But uh, I think that like in screenwriting, it's a lot easier to sort of develop a plot and figure out what the what like the story is and like create like you know this little world and stuff. But actually making characters talk in a way that is believable and and seems to be as real while still being digestible and and everything like like it's the hardest component and i think that he does a fantastic job of it in ways that a lot of uh a lot of movies are lacking all right cool um so ryan now that you've finally seen this movie would you um would you revisit rewatch this movie in the future oh i definitely will yeah it's uh i mean even just having watched it twice in the last two days it's it's. I still feel like there's more there that if I go back to it, I'll be picking up other pieces and and things to it. I think that it's easily rewatchable and easily rewatchable in a whenever sort of rather than like oh once in a while like we said sweet hereafter, but like for this like whenever probably. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm the same, and in fact. Um earlier in the week when we were at work i remember telling you like i'm excited to get to watch this like yeah yeah this weekend even though i have it and and um own it and stuff and in the past and watched it many times i hadn't seen it in a while and i was planning to a couple months ago before the podcast started or we started this and then it got on the list here so i've saved it till now (laughs) and then i was really thirsting for it by the time we got to it um so yeah for me it's a it's a rewatchable film um now is this a film you would uh you would seek out is this one you would um or you would tell someone if they if they couldn't find it on one of the streaming services or find it very easily that they should maybe pay to rent it or or seek it out somewhere more difficult yeah yeah i mean i think especially these days there's always there there would be a caveat of like you know as we said there's some a little bit more uh, uh, colorful and problematic language that's used in it, but 
but with that caveat in mind, I think that I would a hundred percent recommend people watching it because it's because of the fact that it's such a an interesting blend of this character drama into such a a more action and like adventure kind of genre world. Yeah, and again, I mean, I would agree that uh, like, well, I think most people I've ever recommended this movie to have told me they've enjoyed it. I, I don't feel bad recommending it generally. Yeah, no. And I mean, like to a mature audience, obviously, I wouldn't recommend this to well, my twelve-year-old niece yeah, yeah. or whatever. But um, yeah, so uh, yeah, it's definitely definitely one I would seek out. Um, but do do you find you need you don't? Well, I guess you kind of answered in the rewatchable if you need to be in a mood to watch this movie at all. Yeah, I guess when I said that in the beginning, I kind of meant it in more like a a way where like when we talked about the sweet hereafter of having to have time in between watches to sort of experience it and re-experience it uh i'd come back to this one more frequently and at any point is kind of what i meant but that also does play to this question which is that i don't think you need to be in a mood i think i could probably turn it on at any point in time in the day in my mental space and and enjoy it um i think it, needing to be prepared maybe for the fact that it is longer conversation mixed with it within an action movie and there's a lot more dialogue to that but i i don't think that impacts mood per se for me right 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 um yeah and i agree um and then pulling the veil back on on the podcast for a second we when we were when you've invited me onto the podcast a while back we were making lists of which movies we wanted to do first and that kind of thing and when and you did your list before before I did my list, <laughs> and so mine was slightly reactionary to that. And not that I I paired up everything, but when I saw a few of the movies, uh, one being Snatch, which we did last time out, um, I thought this one would pair well with that one because they're they're, I think they deal with um, similar themes a little bit, but they uh, mainly have kind of a similar humor or at least a similar dark humor. And uh, kind of action comedy feel to them. Yeah, there's, there's some connective tissue. Yeah, there. and I and I and I just kind of thought like, um, but I guess to answer the question about mood is what I was with Snatch. What we said last week is that it's a movie I could put on any time because it's a little light, a little like a little more icing on the cake, a little bit. Um, a little less substance doesn't take itself as seriously yeah and and the but and it also things like it has snappier dialogue and quick mm. cuts and it's 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 like it has a pay uh, like a very it feels quicker paced than this movie so yeah this i think the dialogue is 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 fun in this movie and it's awesome but it is like you're saying it's more languid and it's and heavy it's, yeah it's deals with heavier topics and it takes itself seriously in that yeah, and this movie uses things like subtext and things. Um, <laughs> what and so, what is that? <laughs> and uh, and um, and you know, it's not it's not that far under the surface, but it's no. at least under the surface. And it um, and I, but I think it's um, so. I think for mood wise, while I think you could be in any kind of mood to watch this movie, um, I think that it for me it causes reflection and, and retrospection every time. So if it, that for me, if, if that's something, if you want to be, if you want to have a mindless Saturday, maybe it's not the movie to throw on. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's also, but it 
it could play like that to you. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you have to think about existential questions and stuff. And that just goes to my more mental fr- framework <laughs> that if I see anything with that, I start thinking about death oh, and yeah. life and all these big <laughs> all metaphysical these really terrifying questions. thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, with all that said, I guess we'll d- get down to ratings. Yeah. I mean, all right. So I, I, I thought it was a great movie. I loved it. I had a lot of fun with it. And, uh, with that in mind, I feel like I'd give it like a solid seven gothic towers. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, me, I will give it, um, I think 13 canals, but connected ones. Connected oh, canals. Oh, like ones they're that, all kind of yeah, one yeah. piece a little bit? Well, like not in a line, but like right angles, like through the city. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, like yeah. They're, they're part of one greater canal system, but they are individually individual canals. Oh. And there are 13 of which I've given this movie. That, that's, that's quite powerful. That's quite powerful. Very, very well thought out. And on that note, thank you all very much for listening. There are spoilers in this episode, so if you want to ha- not have the movie spoiled, but you better check that out before you give this podcast a listen. If you want to find out our schedule or get in touch or, or find out more about us, you can find us on Instagram at Cinematics Podcast and on Twitter at Cinematics Cast. If you enjoyed the podcast, it would be lovely to hear from you either through comments or through reviews. Uh, they really help us get eyes on and they also help us create better content for you guys going forward. Um, so with that in mind, thank you very much for listening again and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.